Revelation chapter 2, beginning with verse 1, Jesus dictating through the Apostle John. He says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear with those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now, as we mentioned in our introduction, there are several important ways you need to view these letters in order to maximize everything Jesus is trying to communicate to us, not just as a church, but us individually. Every letter closes with this admonition that he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So in addition to Jesus writing to a local church there in Ephesus, the first century, an actual brick and mortar church, in addition to writing to an historical time period, seven letters uh, indicating, signifying the totality of church. We'll get to that in a moment. Jesus is wanting our church to heed a warning, to absorb a message, to place ourselves under the tutelage of a concept. But then he's also speaking to us individually, to the churches, plural, but also he who has an ear. A church doesn't have an ear. Obviously, the application is meant for each of us. So in starting, let's kind of set up the backdrop to the letter itself. The church in Ephesus. The city of Ephesus had its origins as a Hellenistic city situated on the western coast of Greece. It dates back to about the 10th century BC. The city itself reached notoriety when Caesar Augustus issued a formal decree making Ephesus the capital of Asia Minor. This took place in 27 BC. And as a result of becoming the seat of the Roman governor, as well as the center of commerce and banking, for the entire region. Note that Ephesus uh, had a significant port for the area. It also sat at the cross section of four major Roman highways. But Ephesus almost immediately kind of entered into an, an era of prosperity. By the mid first century, Ephesus was known as the backbone of the Roman Empire. Greek historian Strabo said that Ephesus was second in importance and size only to Rome. The city was so influential that it served as the lifeblood, the heartbeat for the whole area, the entire region. The city itself, the city of Ephesus, was famed for three archeological achievements. First, she, she boasted this massive open air amphitheater that could seat up to 25,000 spectators. She also boasted as having one of the most significant libraries in the Roman world, probably second 
to only Alexandria, making Ephesus a center of learning. Ephesus was also the seat of the famous temple of Artemis, or Diana in Roman mythology, which was at the time one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Understand, this temple to Artemis was four times the size of the Parthenon. It was a massive, awesome, ornate structure. It was 450 feet in length, 225 feet in width, 60 feet tall, with more than 127 columns supporting this ornate roof. Because Diana, Artemis, was the goddess of childbirth and women, Ephesus also became a religious center, aside from the grotesque practices of temple prostitution, the worship of Diana was steeped in mysticism and the occult. The city of Ephesus, dedicated to the worship of Diana, was filled with all types of unspeakable immoralities. And yet, Ephesus also proved to be a very fertile ground, fertile soil, for the gospel message. Though Paul visited Ephesus at the end of his second missionary journey, along with his pals Aquila and Priscilla, he quickly left to go to Jerusalem only to return during his third missionary journey, spending almost three years in ministry in Ephesus. Acts 18 and 19, you can read the accounts. Not only do we see that this church, the church of Ephesus, made up, by the way, mostly of Gentiles, was founded and shepherded by the Apostle Paul. We're told that he would teach them daily from the school of Tyrannus. But we're also told that as a result of the work God was doing through this church in this city, the name of Jesus was magnified, Acts 19, verse 17, and the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed, Acts 19, verse 30. The impact of this church was so awesome Everyone felt the effects that a man named Demetrius eventually stirred up a riot claiming, quote, that not only was their trade, their trade was selling silver shrines of Diana to the pilgrims that would come through the city, not only was their, their job, their vocation in danger of falling into disrepute, but Demetrius says that also the temple of the great goddess Diana ran the risk of being despised and her magnificence destroyed because of the work of Jesus being accomplished through this church and this city and this time. I mean, imagine that. The radical impact of the gospel and the city of Ephesus was so tangible, it affected the economy. I mean, it affected the pocketbook of Satan. Now, following the arrival of Paul, the message of the gospel and the formation of this church, Ephesus, impacted not just that city, but, but the whole area. The whole area would not be the same from this work. Not only did the church continue to grow, but from the church in Ephesus, some 12 satellite churches would be planted all throughout the region. As a matter of fact, the six other churches Jesus will write to all were planted by the work there in Ephesus. Twelve churches in all. This Ephesian church, you should also keep in mind, was a theological titan. 
I mean, in a, in a sweet moment that Paul would spend with the Ephesian elders in Miletus in Acts chapter 20, he would attest that while he was there these three years, he would, quote, not shun to declare to them the whole counsel of God. They had, man, awesome Bible teaching. Verse by verse, chapter by chapter, the whole counsel of God. And they loved it. And they absorbed it. Their doctrinal acumen for the reference can be evidenced by the weighty subject matter that a letter Paul would write some 10 years later from a Roman jail cell would attest to. You read through the letter or the epistle to the Ephesians, Ephesus, you'll find that the subject matter was not stuff for babes. It was the meat of the word. The concepts were, were incredibly weighty. Beyond Paul's legacy there, the, the ministry he left behind, three years having the Apostle Paul as your pastor, that's pretty awesome. He would be replaced by his protege, a young man by the name of Timothy, and then later by none other than the Apostle John. It's likely that in writing here, when, when John heard right to the angel of the church of Ephesus, his ears really peaked up because he was the bishop, the angel, the pastor of this particular church. So you had John, his teaching ministry, only following on the footsteps of Timothy and originally Paul. I mean, that's quite a trifecta of pastors overseeing a church, solid Bible teaching. It's likely the, the subject matter of John's first and second and third letters probably originated there in Ephesus, intended for Ephesus. For context, note that this letter that Jesus is writing would come 40 years after the church had been established and 30 years after Paul's epistle. So the backdrop there, the city of Ephesus, the church in that particular city. Now let's set the context. And the context is that the, the church itself, this letter represented something more than the local church. Now, while it's impossible to place these seven letters into a rigid sequential order based solely on dating, you know, that, that one letter would begin here and end in another place. Scholars do agree that these seven letters do represent loose periods and movements of church history with this particular letter representing what's known as the post-apostolic church. So let's set this letter in context to what was happening during this particular time period. Historically, as the church the universal church, began to transition away from its founding generation, the generation of the apostles, which is why we call this the post-apostolic church. A couple things become noteworthy, the generations to follow. First, like the early original followers of Jesus, the early generations of Christians, they were extremely devoted to the things of Christ. In a Roman world, that was largely hostile to Christians. These saints during this time period were serious about their faith. You couldn't be a Christian and not be serious about following Jesus. You lived for Jesus, but in all likelihood during this time, you ran the risk of also dying for Jesus. Waves of persecution would fill the first and second centuries. 
The second thing we should note about this time period of church history, as demonstrated by the writings of Clement of Rome and the Diodaci, this post-apostolic church was, like the first generation, doctrinally sound. We see that from the letter written to Ephesus. Now, sure, there were still some heretical influences that were percolating around the church, but during this time period, they were largely relegated to the fringes, and they were way below the surface. One can imagine that, that these generations of Christians took this approach of rooting out heresy because all of the early church fathers preached against heresy, warned the church that when they left, what would follow? Wolves, Paul, Peter, John himself. Over and over and over again throughout the New Testament and the New Testament writings, they're constantly warning the church to be on guard, knowing that when they would leave, what would follow would be evil influences trying to corrupt the church from the inside. And yet, while they resisted heresy and remained doctrinally pure, according to some of the writings of the early church leaders of this post-apostolic church age, during this period, a transition began to occur that was not very good. Quickly, the church was beginning to transition from grace to legalism. Because these Christians feared the wicked tendencies of their world as likely and possibly beginning to negatively influence their church, the early church fathers, to protect themselves from these influences, they began to erect moral walls in order to insulate the people from these creeping sinful influences. And while the motivation for this was the desire to remain holy, to remain set apart, not a bad desire. The sad reality of this time period is that holiness was no longer seen as the result of a transformative power brought about in a life through God's grace, but rather as something to be achieved through personal performance and the limiting of liberty. I'll give you an example of, of how this creeping legalism was working its way into the church. Ignatius, wonderful man, a man who died for his faith in a very violent way. A man who was the third bishop of the church of Antioch. You remember in our travels uh, through the book of Acts, Antioch kind of took the place of Jerusalem as being one of the most significant churches uh, during the first century. Antioch was Paul's home church, his sending church, so to speak. But Ignatius even being a student of the Apostle John, he wrote this, experience proves that in this life, peace and satisfaction are had, not by the listless, but by those who are fervent in God's service, and rightly so. For in their effort to overcome themselves and to rid themselves of self-love, they rid themselves of the root of all passion and unrest. You begin to see an emphasis on our work, versus his. Now, with all this in mind, with the backdrop, the context set up, let's look at Jesus's commendation of the Ephesian and post-apostolic church, the things that Jesus saw that he liked, that he commended them for. If you look back at the text, Jesus begins by saying, I know. Jesus knew. Not only did he know as the high priest, as the one in the midst of the seven golden lance stands, the, the one doing the evaluating, 
But this word to know, it, it, it indicates that he had a full knowledge of. It was not just that he was uh, looking into the church affairs. It's that he knew he had an understanding of the church affairs. He knew what was going on. He says, I know your works. This word works. It's, it's to occupy oneself, that which one undertakes to do. I know your works, your labor, that word labor. It, it literally means an intense labor that comes with it, trouble and toil. It means to labor, to work at one's occupation to the point of utter exhaustion. And yet they weren't exhausted. Jesus says, I know your patience. Your works, your labor, your patience. Your steadfast endurance that you're not swerved from your purpose. He also commends them for their perseverance. That they were willing to bear what was burdensome finishes by saying that you've labored for my name's sake and you have not become weary. Like that's a wonderful commendation, isn't it? These saints served faithfully and they took their calling seriously. While their world, their culture was incredibly immoral and hostile to the followers of Jesus, these Christians were working hard to fulfill the work and the ministry, the calling and commission that Jesus had given them. Outwardly, this church was balling. They were active, they were impressive. There was a genuine determination to reach their world no matter what the cost. Aside from this, Jesus commends them also for the fact that they cannot bear those who are evil. Those seeking to reach a corrupt church, these saints, they wanted to reach their culture, but they refused to compromise morally. They were able to influence their world without allowing the world to negatively influence them. And why? Because while they're wanting to be salt and while they're wanting to be light, while they're wanting to be ministers of the gospel, they refuse to, look at it, support or bear those who are evil, or literally those of a bad nature. You can imagine that these church leaders were not afraid of rooting out and exerting church discipline and the presence of sin, knowing that a healthy body requires a healthy immune system. You can't allow cancer to spread. You've got to deal with it. You've got to root it out. These men were faithful to do this. I mean, the stakes were simply too high to allow nonsensical, sinful behavior to spread throughout their church. Jesus also says that you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and you found them to be liars. This church, founded on the truth of scripture, they were also Berean in the sense that they tested. Or when someone would come in to teach, they would make trial of what they said. Of those claiming to have authority, these apostles, these Ephesians tested what they said. And not only were they serious about protecting the flock of God, they were willing to call heresy what it was, a lie. They were willing to protect the truth from any influence that would pervert the gospel. Specifically, if you notice, Jesus commends them for hating the deeds of the Nicolaitans. 
which he says he also hated, which is really amazing. Like you're gonna be hard pressed to find too many instances where Jesus, Jesus actively says, I hate something. I hate that. This Greek word, Nicolaites, it's a compound word, which might actually lead us to its meaning, who this group of people were. The word Nico means to conquer, and the word laetes means the people. It's why we refer to the congregation of the church as the laity, the people. Many scholars believe, and there's some debate to it, that the Nicolaitans were an early group of church leaders that were seeking to exert authority over the people, to conquer the people by claiming that the people had a need for a priestly intermediary other than Jesus. And if this is the case, it would explain why he hated them so. For you know, no man has the right to come between Jesus and his wife or his kids. Look now, not just at his commendation. I know your works, your doctrinal purity. On the outside, everything's good, but now notice the criticism. Though the church was doing all of the right things, I mean, you and I would have a really hard time finding anything wrong. This would be the church and the community we would all gravitate to. It looked great, it looked legit. I mean, on the surface, their bulletin was filled with activities. They were ministering in the community. They were feeding the poor. I mean, they were doing it all. To us, no problems, man. This is a healthy, vibrant church, but not so to Jesus because he diagnoses here a heart condition. Look at it, he continues. Nevertheless, nevertheless, it's not a good word to find after a list of, of good things. I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Now, in order to understand what it was that these believers left, you need to first unpack what Jesus means when he says first love, because I think there's actually some confusion to this. In the Greek, protos, which means first in rank, and agape, being a feminine noun, signifies love or affection. This is one's first affection, first love. Now, what's interesting is that love, we find the word agape. And in almost every instance in scripture, agape is used for a very specific thing. It's used to refer to a covenant love of God for mankind that yields a reciprocated love back to him. 12 times in the New Testament, you will find agape used in the phrase, the love of God. It's God's love. Now, contrary to what most Bible commentators say, I do not believe that in referring to their first love, that Jesus was addressing a feeling that had diminished an excitement that this church no longer possessed or a romance that with time had slowly waned. You know, the first love, that espousal love. Do you remember that love? I don't think this is what's happening. I don't believe as one pastor who I really love and admire, he says that the problem was that their home had become a house. And that sounds great, but I don't think that's what's being communicated. Please understand, when it comes to the Christian experience, your experience and my experience, first love, or agape love 
was never a love that I possessed for God, but rather a love he demonstrated towards me. This love, this first love is not me. It's not mine. It's him. It's his. Paul would write to the Romans in Romans 5 verse 8. He says, but God demonstrated his own love, agape, towards us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the first love. So how is it that we leave our first love? We leave our first love. Please follow me here. It's vitally important. We leave our first love the moment the motivation for doing anything related to the Christian life, Bible study, worship, prayer, service, church attendance becomes anything other than a natural response of Jesus's love for me. I'll repeat it, it's that important. We leave our first love the moment the motivation for doing anything related to the Christian life becomes anything other than the natural response of Jesus's love, his first love for me. You see, the problem with this church, Jesus's problem, was not that they no longer had a love for Jesus. I mean, you don't work and labor and persevere and have that type of patience to the point that, that you should be weary, but you're not, if you don't love someone. I don't question their love for Jesus at all. It wasn't the problem. The problem, as I see it, was that they had grown to see their work as a way they could demonstrate their love for Jesus as opposed to their work being a natural response of the love Jesus had already demonstrated towards them, his agape love. The issue Jesus is addressing was not diminished feelings or some type of waning passion. It was a warped motivation. They were working for the wrong reason, which explains, right? Why after listing all of these wonderful things that this church was doing, Jesus says, nevertheless, I have this against you. He's literally saying, in spite of all of that, all of the good things happening in this church, there's one thing missing that trumps it all, that I find to be more important than it all. Jesus is telling them that he cared more about the motivation behind their work than the work itself. Notice, this was not something they had lost on accident. The word lost isn't used here, but rather something they left, which implies intent. And you know, I have found in the context of our spiritual lives, leaving your first love is actually much easier to do than one might have thought. Understand, there is a dangerous byproduct when the motivation of our Christian service shifts from being a natural response of his love for me to the way I demonstrate my love for him. You know what it is? Our works supplant his grace as the basis of God's favor and our holiness. Because their church culture stressed demonstrating love for Jesus over enjoying Jesus's love for them, it had become very easy to then subtly focus more on the work they did and the sacrifices they made for Christ 
than focusing on the work he did and the sacrifice he made for them. Holiness in this church had become the result of pious living and not the byproduct of his amazing grace. The sufficiency of Jesus' work was being replaced with the sufficiency of their own merit. And Jesus has a problem with that. In a sense, Jesus is telling them his correction, his criticism, is that because they were exchanging the gospel of grace for the anti-gospel of legalism, this church was doing something dangerous. They were leaving their first love. Now, on on a side note, I call it the anti-gospel of legalism because any position that demands I do something to earn God's favor is diametrically opposed to the good news, it's what we call the gospel, that Jesus has already done something sufficient to earn that favor for me. Since the anti-gospel of legalism heralds personal achievement over sin in place of the gospel of grace, which preaches his victory over sin, legalism. When it comes to a church, it creates a moral structure, a culture that demands just to hold itself up, more laws to obey, liberties to forgo, things to be sacrificed and works to do, you know, because it's all about you showing your love for Jesus instead of simply enjoying a personal relationship founded on Jesus's first love for me and for you. Let's look at his counsel. In light of this heart condition, Jesus then pleads with them. Look at it. He says, remember where you've fallen. Then he exhorts them to repent before finally admonishing them to do the first works. Now, obviously, the key to understanding Jesus's counsel hinges upon what he means, right, when he says to do the first works. Let me explain how most pastors apply this passage. And I don't do it on, and like intentionally, but anytime I do this, I end up like somehow gravitating into like a really bad Southern accent. So just kind of bear with me here. If you've left your first love and you're no longer feeling it for Jesus like you once, then you need to get back to doing the things you were doing, you know, when you first got saved. The first works. Just like a married couple whose flame has dimmed. On the, on the verge of going out, the key to rectifying this stagnation is to re-stimulate the relationship. You need to reignite the passion you've lost with Jesus by getting back to work. Christian, how dare you be a lazy wife? Return to your first love. Do the first works by committing to read through your whole Bible over the coming year. Get back to worshiping God like you once did in your car, singing along with that angel, Chris Tomlin. That that was for you, Andy. Start rising, you know, early. Before your wife, before the kids. 
early before the sun to spend time in prayer. You know, the key to this, get back to serving, serving others, taking care of your neighbors. You need to get back into church. It's the key. Friend, the best way to fix this love problem, well, it's to recreate the early days of the relationship. We've all heard it taught this way. I have. Maybe not with that bad of an accent, but I have. And yet, and yet there's a problem with this approach. Aside from the fact that this church was already doing everything you could possibly do. I mean, don't, don't forget his commendation. You're working, man. You're doing it all. It's all good. There's nothing else they can do. They can't read their Bible anymore. They love their Bible. They're at every Bible study imaginable. They're praying, they're worshiping, they're serving. They're, there's no problems with what they're doing. So there's nothing else for them to do. You see, the problem with this approach is that it's a foundational reality of the gospel. That it's impossible to transform a heart through outward activity, works. You know, the sad thing is, by presenting things to do in order to fix a relationship with Jesus, this particular perspective is actually guilty of the very thing Jesus is trying to address through the letter in the first place. How many Calvary chapels maybe are just as guilty of this? You know, it's not an accident that Jesus opens his letter by introducing himself as he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Beyond the fact that Jesus, in introducing himself this way, is reminding them of his authority over the church. I hold these seven stars in my right hand, the pastors. I'm the ultimate pastor. I'm the ultimate authority. Notice this detail, that he walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. This is interesting. We've already seen in chapter one that Jesus is in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, these churches. But in this instance, there's something added. His activity, that he's walking in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. You see, what this is telling us is that Jesus is trying to get their focus, not just on his person, but also his presence. Understand, the only way to effectively change the heart, the only way to readjust one's motivations is not to do things. It's not works, it's not law. The key, the remedy, what transforms your life. It's a person. And his name is Jesus. And it's his love for you and grace that was demonstrated on your behalf. That is the only thing in this universe powerful enough to change you. Not just at salvation, but at any point. May I ask? Think about it. Jesus says, do your first work, right? So what was the first work when it came to a relationship with Jesus? Like, what did you do when you first encountered Christ? The answer, 
you humbly came to the cross. You placed your faith in his sacrifice. Through tears, you accepted his incredible forgiveness, a forgiveness you didn't deserve, and you received his blessed favor, his love. And then you died to yourself so that you could live through him. Like, with this in mind, consider what Jesus is really saying, what his counsel really is. He first pleads with them, right? To remember from where you have fallen. Like, in order to address this heart condition, Jesus wants them to remember the beginning, the context, not the feeling, but the context for how your relationship with Jesus began in the first place. It was not your love for him. It was his love for you. Your love foundationally has nothing to do with it. It has everything to do with him. Like, I think in this moment, Jesus is wanting them and us to remember the first encounter, the first time we experienced the first love, his love being demonstrated to them, independent of them by his amazing grace. And then he commands them to repent, to repent of what? To repent of any motivation being anything other than the first love. What we would call the anti-gospel of legalism. Like in order to return to their first love, in order to get back to the point where God's love for them was the preeminent thing, the, the priority, the motivating reality, they needed to reject and turn away from the notion that their works played any part in God's lasting favor or their personal holiness. And yet, repentance, to repent. That, that, that doesn't just mean a turning from. Repentance is more than that. It's also a turning to. Turning from and turning to an about face, which is why Jesus ultimately tells them to get back to doing the first works. Hey, they could remember from where they had fallen. Jesus' grace, that love, demonstrated when they didn't deserve it. They could remember it. They could even repent of their legalism but it would all be for naught if they failed to do the first works, which is what, reading your Bible? No, that didn't, that didn't save you. Worshiping, didn't. Prayer, nope. Service, uh-uh. Going to church, probably not. The first works, to do the first works, they needed to return to the cross, to the place of his grace, the basis of his favor, the motivator of behavior, the origin of holiness, the essence of first love. From 1 John 4, verses 9 and 10, in this, the love of God, the agape of God, was manifested towards us that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. And this love, agape, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Do you realize Jesus doesn't care about you showing him how much you love him? Doesn't care. He, he, he instead cares more about you enjoying his love, you enjoying his favor, you enjoying his grace, 
you enjoying a relationship with him. Now, it's true that that will produce good things, but it's not the motivator. Enjoying Jesus. When you can enjoy Jesus, you can enjoy everything else. Now that's followed, right? By a warning and a reward. He warns this church, which, which is amazing because it, it indicates how serious this was. He says that if they failed to do these things, he would come quickly and remove their lampstand from its place. Because legalism fosters such a distortion of the gospel, Jesus was willing to shut down this church rather than allow it to continue. But then he also promises that if they overcame this root of legalism by returning to the essence of the gospel, their first love, a dependence on his grace alone, well, what would they experience? To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. They could experience renewed life and fruitfulness. In conclusion, What's Jesus trying to say to us? For starters, modeling the outward appearance of this church is not a bad thing. That should be stated. Oh, that we would be a church impacting our community. That we'd be recognized and admonished by Jesus as a serving church. That we'd possess a heart to study the word of God and the boldness to speak the truth and call out the lie that we would love Jesus and hate the things he hates. Oh, that we would be a church distinct from, but that also appeals to our culture. That it would be said of us that while we were a magnet for the downtrodden, we boldly resisted that which was evil. That in our witness, it might be said of us that Jesus was magnified and his word his word grew mightily. And yet, we should also take to heart Jesus' criticism. For when any aspect of our Christian experience is motivated by anything other than his love, we are in danger of leaving our first love and beginning, and beginning the dangerous tailspin from grace into legalism. Like, don't misunderstand. Work in and of itself, it's not a bad thing. In actuality, work was something God designed specifically for man's enjoyment. If you go all the way back to the beginning of, of creation, the human experience, you will see that Adam enjoyed his work, tending and caring for the garden. Why? Because it flowed from his relationship with God. It was God-given and God-motivated. And yet, following the fall, when Adam's work no longer flowed from his relationship with God, you will notice something very quickly, how Adam's work morphed into labor and toil. Genesis three, God said to Adam, cursed is the ground for your sake. That's interesting. And toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. You see in here, I see an amazing manifestation of God's grace. And follow me. For I believe any time our Christian life no longer flows from our relationship with Jesus, one thing is certain to happen. 
Because the end result is he'll remove our lampstand, there's one thing bound to happen, and that's that God will curse the work, and it will no longer be enjoyable. And he does this for a reason. You see, what many Christians call getting burned out in their service, or when their Bible study turns stale, their time and prayer ritualistic, worship enthusiastic, or their church experience regimented, when work turns into labor and is no longer as enjoyable as it once was, when that happens, I believe it's actually God actively and deliberately cursing the work as a warning that you've left your first love, that your motivation is no longer to reciprocate his love. This is why it's so important we always remain cognitive. Cognitive of and reliant on a person and the presence of Jesus. That we abide in no other place than at the foot of the cross and may we rely on nothing else than his grace. That we may seek to do nothing more than the first works whereby all other Christian work shall flow. This morning, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We have a choice what type of church we want to be. You have a choice what type of relationship with Jesus you want to have. It's yours. You can labor in legalism, seeking to earn a favor you've already been given while in the process die a slow death, an unenjoyable death. Or you can abide in grace and experience the life and the fruitfulness that flows from no other source than a relationship with Jesus.